What's going on, Kim? Welcome to the show. Hi, Luke. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. I appreciate you being here a ton. You're somebody who I've, uh, I don't know, secretly is a weird way to describe it, but I've just, I followed a lot of health and fitness coaches, especially for the last like two, three years. I've kind of, I've definitely followed a ton, a lot more uh, people who I don't normally like resonate with people like uh, Flav City, people like very uh, kind of, uh, I think, toxic to the food industry and the health space and different coaches that speak messages just to expose myself to that. And the reason I bring that up is like the last year and a half or so, I've pretty much cleaned out all of my social media, all the people that I followed. I probably followed like 200 coaches at one point. Now I'm following like, I don't know, 30 or 35. And you have always been on that list. And you've always been a person that I've enjoyed reading your content. I've found myself just like nodding my head. I've also learned a lot from you as I work with, you know, clients who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, mothers, especially. Uh, so all that being said, I just think you do an incredible job in well, thank you. And I, I just had to get you on the show. You've been in my notes section for like a year to reach out to, to get on. Here. <laughs> well, um, I'm happy to be here. Good. Just a long-winded way of saying, like, I, I really appreciate all the stuff that you've done. And I'm really excited to see where our topics of conversation go today. So with all that being said, I feel like my followers probably know who you are, but for the people who don't give your little intro and, uh, you know, we'll go from there. Yeah. So my name is Kim. I'm a 53-year-old health and fitness coach. I help women get strong, lose weight, improve their relationship with food. I specifically work with women over 40. I'm 53. I have three kiddos, um, 18 to 21. I live outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I came to fitness late in life as compared to most coaches. Um, in my earlier years, actually most of my life, no one would have ever been like, that's somebody who enjoys fitness, you know, like, or I would have never identified as an athlete of any kind. Um, from a very young age in my teenage years, I wanted to lose like the last five pounds. Like I was not overweight by any stretch of the imagination but I was always pursuing this ideal body in my mind. It was quite toxic, you know, watch, reading the fashion magazines. And so all through my late teens, all through my 20s, I was doing crazy diets, just trying really hard to lose weight. When I look back, knowing what I know now, literally the body I was looking for was on the other side of strength training. And I didn't know that. And I wish I had. Um and in my 30s, when I started having kiddos, like I said, I have three kids with each of my pregnancies, I gained 50 pounds and I never fully lost those 50 pounds before I had the next baby. And so by mid my mid 30s, I was struggling with obesity and had no further knowledge than I'd ever had about how to lose that weight. And so I spent my, the rest of my 30s really struggling um, with how I felt, with my health, um, with just how I moved in the world, how I felt about myself and really struggling to lose weight. And I would lose weight and gain weight. And it wasn't until my early 40s, I was 43, where I was exposed to both um, the amazingness that is strength training and evidence-based nutrition principles like understanding energy balance and using both of those completely transformed my body and then set out to help other women do the same thing. Awesome. Yeah. I, I didn't know any of that. So it's always fun <laughs> to, to kind of learn on the fly here, but, uh, I, I can't help. I wrote down in my notes, like, like gained, you know, 50 pounds identified as overweight, obese after having your kids. I think that's a really common, like uh, transition for a lot of women, especially in their like thirties, whenever they decide to have children, uh, it's, and 
you know, I'm not saying, you know, you're old or people in their forties or fifties are old, but like there's a generational difference too. in what you grew up consuming, what your parents did. Uh, I can't help but laugh every time I'm traveling, you know, I see all of these, you know, women's world magazines with all these, you know, uh, magic, uh, claim and all these things like, and it's marketed <laughs> to women that are in their forties or fifties or sixties. Yeah. And it's people that, you know, maybe like yourself has been exposed to this for so long. So I, I can only imagine what that felt like having, you know, your last pregnancy and being in the spot and having no idea what to do. Yeah, this, this, I think it's one of the, the big problems, especially for women of my generation, because we were exposed to such garbage messages about um, health and fitness and about how to achieve successful weight loss, um, you know, just really nonsense that doesn't work in the backs of these magazines and on the front covers, just splashed absolute craziness. And um, having tried and failed and tried and failed, we often tend to believe that the problem is with us, like that's something about us, like, oh, I'm just a person who can't lose weight, right? It's my body, it's my metabolism. And I work with a lot of women today who really have that ingrained in their brains. For sure, for sure. I um something that comes to mind was an Instagram post by someone. I think we both admire Jordan Syatt. I think you've worked with him oh, yeah. at one point. Yeah. Jordan's been a, he's a longtime friend of mine. He's actually the coach who got me uh, into the online space. He was my awesome. coach. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. What a good mentor. And uh, I've been following him for a while too. And he, one of the most memorable things that have stuck out to me, I think that he's posted um, or maybe some rendition of this is like reasons why people gain weight. And there was nothing really major that uh, entailed food in that list. It was like having kids, uh, having a stressful job, having more responsibility, having kids, um, you know, <laughs> uh, aging, having less time, you know, less freedom and flexibility, having kids, like having yeah. kids with like 10 on the list right here. And, uh, yeah, I can't help but think that like, man, it's, uh, it's amazing because in the food environment and the messaging that we receive, like it's kind of this perfect recipe for people to like gain weight and then just get to this spot where they feel somewhat like hopeless or just have no idea what to do. Um, did you kind of feel like that uh, in the moment? Like, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I fully embraced what used to be just widely taught, which was you're eating for two. Like I was like, all right, I'm eating for two. Um, and that was way too much food. And realistically, no one is eating for two when you're pregnant. And I think people do a better job of teaching around that nowadays. But I did that. I also had very difficult pregnancies in terms of how I felt, the health conditions I had that went along with my pregnancies. Um, so even I think if I had cooled it on how much I was eating, I was just not well. And so I really wasn't moving. Um, and so it created a perfect storm. And then just the stress that comes with new parenthood there's a lot of balls in the air and trying to figure out your own fitness and nutrition. It can, it's just not always a priority because you're literally trying to figure out how to live each day and keep these little humans alive and try and get some sleep and go to the bathroom, you know? Um, so it was a very trying time. My heart definitely goes out to women in that stage. I'm long past that now. Um, but it's, it's a tough time. Absolutely. Yeah. And you bring up the word emotional and emotional eating to me is always something that sticks out that I think at some level, everybody experiences, especially mothers, especially, you know, mothers with infants and kids and at whatever age their kids are, not to mention people who have careers and are very driven and moms that are navigating both. And they're also trying to provide for their parents who are now aging. Right. And it's just kind of this weird balance, not to like only cater to the female population here, but that's kind of what's on my mind. And that's what you do best at, you know? So just thinking about this emotional eating thing, 
man, it's uh, I think it's a problem that everyone deals with, but especially people who have kids who are in kind of this phase of their life where they're like trying to take care of everyone else, but also being told and trying to take care of themselves. But that balance just gets tipped in one direction more often than not sometimes. Yeah. You know, I think everyone, not everyone, I think a lot of people, more people than not uh, emotionally eat. And it's not always a problem necessarily. Emotional eating can be a problem if it is um, one, getting in the way of a person's ability to reach their goals, right? So if you're emotional eating enough that you're not able to lose the weight you want to lose, feel as as you want to feel, that's a problem. Or even if that's not the issue, but if it's your only or your main coping tool for stress, that's a problem because it's just not useful, right? So if you're stuffing down your emotions with food, which a lot of us have done, that's when it's a problem. And for a lot of people, one or both of those are the case. And so the good thing about emotional eating is it's a habit that you have practiced. It's a coping skill you have practiced and you can practice doing other things in place of that. Um, And so the first piece of that is really being aware of this, like noticing your emotional eating, evaluating, like, is this an issue for me? And if you decide it is, really spending some time becoming aware of when you do it, like, what situations typically trigger that for you? For me, like when I was when I was like a mom of kids who were a little bit older, like teenagers or even like older kids, like my one of my main triggers was when my kids would start bickering. I would immediately like start putting my hand like for M&Ms or cookies. Like it was just this sense of like, I can't handle the bickering. Another one for me that has historically been an issue and I'm aware of it now is when I have some kind of technical trouble with work, like I'm having problems with my computer, with my microphone, with some program I'm working on. That for me, like I immediately think like I could use a snack, right? And so figuring out for you what your cluster of like, this triggers me to want to emotionally eat. Is it when you're lonely? Is it when you're talking to your boss? Is it when you're with your mom? Like, what is it? And then really paying attention to how you feel physically. Like, what do you do? Do you like, bite your lip? Do you like curl your toes in your shoes? So you can come really into tune with what you do so that as you're paying attention to this, you start to notice, oh, wait, I'm feeling that sensation. I'm doing that thing that I usually do before I emotionally eat. So eventually you can catch it ahead of time. And then at a time when you're not in this situation, really coming up with a list of items, things you could do in place of food. So maybe for you could have on that list, like pet your dog. Maybe you could have on that list, like lay down on the couch for 10 minutes. Maybe you could have on that list, go outside for a walk or put on some music or text my best friend. Something that's, the list should be comprised of things that are reasonable, right? You can't put on there like hop a jet to Paris, right? Unless you're incredibly wealthy, but things you could reasonably do. And then you start putting those pieces together. You start paying attention, you notice you're having the sensation of like, I want to use food to manage this uncomfortable feeling I have. And then you choose one of those other strategies and you really work on practicing that and you give yourself space and grace to do that. And it's not going to happen overnight. Like over time, you'll be like, oh, wait, I did start emotional eating, but then I stopped and I went and I pet my dog instead. And over time, you'll be able to catch it ahead of time. It's a really life-changing thing to build like a toolbox of strategies you can use to navigate your emotions that isn't just food. Yeah. And you brought up something too that I, I think is one of the more important things here is the fact that like 
in a lot of instances, it's not super useful or productive to like reach for food because in I'll backtrack here. A lot of times people navigate towards that or they decide to do that probably because it's accessible. Maybe they have stuff yeah. in the house and um, it's just like something that they could do, like they have control over. And it's probably something that's been ingrained in them for a lifetime, honestly. Yeah. It's um, an easy way to feel better, right? In that that temporary moment, you have this little like, ah, oh, that tastes good. I'm not thinking about this uncomfortable feeling. Yeah. And then unfortunately, what can happen for a lot of people, at least people that I've seen and and that I've worked with is the act of doing that can then make you feel guilty or shameful, or maybe that leads to a binge or just like an uncontrolled yeah. session of like eating and eating things like, let's be real. We're not going to be reaching towards bell peppers and carrots and hummus for the time. <laughs> no. So like yeah, no. some of these easy things you have kids, like they like the cereal, they like the cookies and the crackers, like you, the stuff you just might have laying around the house. And then you overindulge on that. And then you have that feeling of guilt and shame, um, that is added on top of the stressor that was already stimulating or, or, or leading you to have that, you know, cascade of emotions. And then it's just kind of this like, you know, clusterfuck of emotions that is really hard to deal with. And, um, the reason I say food doesn't always help. And I love that you said that is because a lot of times, at least in the moment, at least as you're learning about this and actually challenging some of the actions and the, the beliefs that you've had is you don't really know the difference. You know, you think that that's something that's helping you in the moment and you're moving on from it, but man, sometimes you got to explore that. And, you know, I like the list that you, you kind of gave, but it almost takes acknowledging that working through that. And then, you know, not to say that emotional eating, like you said, is this terrible thing that no one should ever do, but learning how to like, you know, appreciate that or learning strategies where like, Hey, food is a second or third option. Um, cause maybe I am actually craving that, or maybe I'm actually hungry and doing one or the two or three or four things um, that I can rotate through to kind of like, blunt that stimulus could be the thing that you need to explore before you, you know, continue to take the next step. So yeah, I love that. Yeah. And I think it's also important, you know, the, the part you mentioned about the guilt to talk back to your brain about that and to remind yourself like, okay, like I didn't do something terrible here. I didn't rob a bank. I didn't hurt a baby. Like I ate too many M&Ms. And so really realistically speaking back to your brain about the fact of like, this is what I did. And reminding yourself, this is a coping skill I have practiced. And I can learn to navigate this another way, but feeling bad about myself, shaming myself isn't going to help. And you wouldn't do that to anybody else in your life. Like if your friend called you and was like, I just ate seven Oreos because I was mad at my husband, you wouldn't, you wouldn't berate them. You wouldn't be like, oh, that's terrible. And you're never going to be able to lose weight now. And you're such a failure. Like you, you wouldn't say any of those things. And so reminding yourself of that and practicing speaking to yourself kindly, it's, you're going to be a work in progress with that. Um, but remind yourself, it's not useful or necessary to talk badly about yourself to get past emotional eating. And then the other thing I would say um, on this line is to also consider besides these like smaller strategies of, like I said, like having this list of things to do in the moment when you're tempted to emotionally eat, also look at larger patterns and see, does something need to be addressed? Because, you know, just because you're not eating Oreos now and instead you're petting your dog doesn't mean that you've addressed something like, uh, I don't have a job that I like and I don't have any friends and I don't have any hobbies that I enjoy. And I've worked with a lot of women like this. One that stands out to me in particular, she's fantastic. She's fantastic. She had amazing results. Her name's Jennifer. She was in her fifties and she was getting really good results. But the one thing she was really struggling with was 
emotionally eating on the weekends. And so the more we talked through this and I would give her some questions to think through, she messaged me one day and she's like, I just realized she's like, I have a job I hate. And I have a two hour commute there and a two hour commute back to a husband and kids who really don't appreciate all that I do for them. I don't have anything fun that I do in my life. What I have is Oreos. And this was like a big light bulb moment for her. And so we started having her come up with a list of small things that could bring her joy while she then set about considering like, do I need a career change? Like, what do I need in my life? But we started like introducing every Thursday. She had to come and tell me like one fun thing she was going to do on the weekend to bring her some happiness that wasn't food. Yep. That's incredible. Yeah. And, and I mean, we could all go through these different, you know, client cases or even people like thinking to themselves right now, like, oh yeah, like this is what comes to mind. Like it's all somewhat individualized and we all have these different responses based on, uh, you know, what our stressors are, what our home life is like, what, you know, our, 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 uh, love with is our job kind of thing. Um, but also even things like dieting history and your perception of food and, um, even maybe labeling things. And it just goes to show you that like, Hey, there's so many inputs that can go into this. And, um, I love what you said, but you got to ha- kind of identify the root cause when we're talking about emotional eating here, because the emotional and the stress that, you know, elicits some of these responses are usually the things that we're trying to avoid when we're reaching for something or, um, like procrastinate on, um, yeah. or kind of just completely like, you know, not acknowledge it and pretend like it doesn't exist because other things or other things can take that place in our mind temporarily. Um, and yeah, you bring up a good point because those stories I feel like are more common than not. Like they aren't talked about as much as maybe they should be. And especially for a mom who may be having this like identity crisis where it's like, Hey, you know, there's all of these different things. Like maybe I've given up my job for a while or temporarily, or I'm staying at home or I'm managing this full lawn business or career and trying to take care of the kids. Or maybe I'm a single mother and I'm trying to navigate through this. And it's like, yeah, you know, stuff that, yeah, having a coach and and exploring that and talking about it and like identifying that can help. Like also, we're very uh, big believers in therapy on this podcast. I've talked about it a million times. I think everybody should have a therapist, but uh, you know, also bringing that into the equation of like, Hey, there's a lot of like mental work that needs to be done as you navigate through your nutrition. And as you start to, again, like we've been talking about changing your physique or reaching your health goals or, or losing weight, if we're classified as overweight or obese and, and all of these things, like, man, sometimes the root cause is not the food and, and more yeah. often than not, it isn't. So Thank you for You're sharing. You're absolutely that right. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And uh, yeah, I, one of the questions I wrote down here is like, why is it always food? You know, and I, I kind of have some ideas, and we've kind of danced around that idea. But if I had to ask you, like, why do you think food is usually the go-to for everybody? Like, what comes up, or what have you seen, or have experienced on your own? Well, because it's there, right? It's it's an easy thing to grab. It's a pleasurable thing. And it doesn't have the same terrible consequences as like alcohol or, uh, you know, drugs, right? It's a way to feel better physically in the moment. It's very pleasurable and it's wildly acceptable. You know, people aren't going to, to be like, wow, look at that woman. She's, you know, eating a piece of cake. So it's, it's, it's um, acceptable. It's easy. It's socially acceptable. And you have it right there. Totally. And not to mention today's food environment makes it more than conducive to do that. 
Yeah, it, you know, absolutely. Your, you know, you don't even have to go get your groceries or have your meals delivered or the, <laughs> some type of food on every corner. Or like we've been talking about, you have kids and they love all the things and it's like mm-hmm. hard because you have the bread drawer and it's like, fuck the bread drawer. I'm like always staring at it, you know, and then these things tip you off and it's like, I'm going to go reach for the cookies or whatever that might be in there. But I think, yeah, I think there's a really th- powerful thing here. And this is idea. And I've talked about this before about how we eat for a lot of different reasons besides being hungry and emotional eating usually for people that does not mean that they're hungry or people do not choose to eat because they are hungry. And that can be a difficult thing to like acknowledge and appreciate in the moment. And sometimes, yeah, maybe you are hungry. Like maybe you have all the stress and all these things you haven't eaten for six hours, you know, and then you just kind of go, you're ravenous and ready to go through everything in sight. But yeah, a lot of times, like there's these emotions that elicit like similar, like signals in our brain that, you know, start to crave something or you start to reach for something. And and not to mention the habit piece of this too, like doing Mm -hmm. this for years, you know, someone maybe being a chronic dyer on top of all of this, like there's all of these different, like inputs that can like really influence your willpower in the moment. Um, and that's why like having systems, having, um, this like, um, curious mindset of like, when do I do this? What things trigger me? How can I acknowledge when that's happening and and what other actions can I take before the food? Um, kind of like you, you listed out a lot of good examples. Maybe we can list like maybe a top five or something. If you have anything in the back of your mind, but like, what are some of these things that we could do in, in place of the food in the beginning? Cause chances are, it's not always, you're not always hungry. And if you are hungry, great. And we acknowledge that let's eat, you know? Yeah. Well, let me say something, a word about that. Then I'll definitely yeah. give you a good top five things that I, that I think could work for a lot of people. And one of the things um, that I want to acknowledge, first of all, is it is a good skill to practice that a lot of people don't have to begin to understand what it feels like to be physically hungry and what it feels like to be satisfied. A lot of people do not spend any time doing that Um, because even if they have spent a lot of time dieting, they're often really following rules about like, I'm just eating this many calories or I eat at this time. And they're not necessarily paying attention to what does my stomach feel like when I'm hungry? And a lot of people couldn't even identify, like if I said, like, what does it feel like when you're hungry? People will say all things like, well, I get a headache or um, I feel tired or I feel edgy or whatever it is. Really, what we want to have be looking for is an actual physical sensation in your midsection that's empty and hollow. And we are so like you were talking about our environment, we have so much food around that a lot of people don't ever get to the point of being hungry because they just eat all day long. They're just grazing. And so really spending some time tuning into your hunger and fullness cues, like you know what it feels like to be overstuffed because we've all done it like on a holiday, right? So people are really familiar with that. Occasionally, you've probably been really hungry, right? Like you you slept in, whatever it is, you have this like really uh, gnawing sensation, really pay attention to what that feels like the next time it happens to you. Notice what that feels like. And then, and this is a big one, pay attention to what it feels like when you're just starting to get hungry. Like let yourself, don't snack all morning and start paying attention to like, what does like mildly hungry feel like? And then start paying attention to like, what does satisfied feel like? If I sit down at a table and I'm not reading a book and I'm not on my phone and I'm not watching TV and I start to eat when I was hungry, 
what does it feel like when I start to feel neutral? Uh, and that can be a big task for people, like really na like navigating what does that spectrum feel like? And I think it can very much help with the idea of choosing when to eat um, and long-term weight maintenance as well, right? So people who really do a good job at maintaining their weight, they don't have to count calories the rest of their life. Their natural hunger and fullness cues can assist them in that. So that's just a little aside because I think that's important. But then um, to your point of like some like maybe five really good things to do instead of emotional eating, probably the top one I would say to people is take a friggin' break. It's one of the other reasons I think people use food a lot is because it feels like a good reason to take a break. So if you're at work and you have a, a deadline and you're working on a project, it can feel like a legitimate reason to take a break because, well, I need to go get food, right? But giving yourself permission to just take a break. And in during that break, maybe it's a walk, maybe it's just uh, closing your eyes while you sit in your chair. Maybe it's reading a few pages of a book. Maybe it's listening to a song you like. Maybe it's literally going outside and just breathing and, you know, feeling grass on your feet. Um, you know, there's lots of little things like that. Going to talk to a coworker, but just acknowledging that you need a break is a huge one. Um, that can help so many people because we we don't let ourselves take breaks because we have so much to do. Totally. Yep. I have two things on that relating back to that first point. I'd love the break. Um, but going back to this, like feeling of hungry and feeling of fullness, the hunger piece, I think could be sometimes easier for some people. Like you actually start to look for it and you can acknowledge it when it's happening. Like you could feel that in a matter of hours or days if you're really looking for it, but people don't mm -hmm. normally spend the time doing that. Cause it's like quite a kind of weird quote unquote. And it's just like, not what <laughs> people do. Um, so acknowledging that and then like building times or building a plate or the amount of food that satisfies you after that meal, like it can be a really helpful tool. Um, but that satisfaction piece, I always find very fascinating. I'm curious if you've found this as well, but sometimes I notice that there's a difference between being like satisfied and being like satiated. Sometimes mm -hmm. there's a difference between the two. What I mean yeah. by that is even myself, sometimes like you have the, the quote unquote, perfect plate, you have the salmon you know, and then you have the, uh, quinoa brown rice packet or, uh, a rice, and then you have a vegetable or a salad or whatever else. And like on paper, everything looks good. 12 grams of fiber, 40 grams of protein, you know, however many calories, like you feel good after it. Um, but sometimes people like, will say, I feel hungry after 30 minutes or an hour. And I find that sometimes when you build these perfect plates, like that's when it could be fun to kind of explore, Hey, maybe I need to finish that you know, meal with a piece of chocolate or something, or maybe, maybe there's another snack that I have an hour later that is like a cool yogurt, like peanut butter, protein powder combination. That's like sweet, that's savory, that's salty. Um, that helps kind of make your, your body satisfied. Maybe at the end of the day, we're using it as an example here. Um, but sometimes I find that like you can have the perfect plate and you could have all of these things and you can hit your numbers for the day, but sometimes there's that empty feeling in, 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 in those instances, maybe maybe it's like kind of warranted to have some of these other fun things that maybe people have told that is off limits or that's not part of the plan or they don't always fit into my numbers for the day. But I find that when you start to add those a little bit more gradually, or you have that as part of your routine, like sometimes it's easier to like control the portions that you eat of those instead of like emotionally eating, like we're talking about and overeat on 10 servings of the Oreos or whatever it is. Um, have, have you found that that is something that maybe makes sense to you. I just can't help but think that like a lot of people have this feeling of like emptiness after eating a perfect meal that on paper should cross all the boxes out, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, you're definitely onto something there. And I think a lot of that can stem from this idea of people um, having rules in their mind, banning certain foods of what they do allow and what they don't allow. And when we can take that away, it can really help the sense of freedom of like, I'm literally allowed to eat whatever I want. There is no rules about like, I'm not allowed to have X food. And the idea of I can get whatever food it is I'm looking for at any time. Right. Um, just have knowing that, like, look, if I want a funnel cake, I can figure out a way to make it, buy it. I don't have to have it at a certain only a certain time of year. Or I can't eat Snickers bars anymore because I'm trying to lose weight and I can't have one till I've lost the weight. And so when we can get rid of all of these rules that we've made for ourselves and people have all kinds of different ones, it can really have the sense of freedom um, that takes away a lot of this feeling of like. Uh, I can't eat it. And so I never feel satisfied. And then learning to introduce things into your daily life that really give you that sense of like, like you said, this, I feel satisfied. I feel not just physically full, but I actually enjoyed my food. And for some people that's like adding a little bit more fat or more flavor to their food. For some people, like you said, it's having some chocolate with your meal. Um, it can be really easy to try and lose weight, especially people who want to do it fast by doing things like eating just like chicken and white fish and broccoli and not preparing it in a way that actually tastes good to you. And then what often happens is people end up overeating later, whereas if they had just had something with a little bit more flavor, maybe they need some more carbs with their meal. Maybe they need a little more fat. Maybe they need a different way of prepping it than just like like steaming it. Maybe they should add a little butter or something. And if they did this, they would actually enjoy the eating experience more and have that like satisfaction quota met as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, the whole like good or bad food dichotomy or like the black and white thinking all the time is uh, such a like a detrimental headspace to be in around nutrition at least, because there's nothing really black or white about nutrition. Um, unless you have like celiac disease and you literally can't eat gluten, like that's about as black as white as this can get, you know, but like for most people, like there's these food rules and these labels that we've been telling ourselves for so long. And that just feeds into the emotional eating side of things. It feels into your satisfaction or satiation, um, component that you get after meals or at the end of the day. And, and I, you said something earlier, but, uh, people don't really know what it feels like to be hungry. Yes. And I find that like, cause I, I help people like, you know, track calories or protein. If we think that that's a good fit, or that's something that is going to help them learn and get to a place where they want to be. And I think that could be a really powerful tool for a lot of people, especially when done with the coach. But the tendency that I see a lot of people get to sometimes is like, just eating to numbers, right? Or just I'm eating this at this time because I know that if I don't do that, it's going to be hard to hit my numbers or maybe I'll go over under for the day. And people can get so into this routine of like just eating towards a number or looking at foods, you know, towards some of these things. And they completely ignore the fact that like, there's like the satisfaction and this like cultural component to food and like how it makes you feel. And, and from a social, you know, standpoint, like, like how you can go to an event and not feel like you're like, walking on eggshells all the time. And the goal for most people for sure should be to like get to a place where they are not tracking, where they're not meticulously looking at how much protein they ate every day or how much fiber they ate every day. I do think that that is a road that is worth traveling on for most people because a lot of people have no idea what 30 grams of fiber looks like, but there's going to get to a point where you have to remove that. And as you continue to navigate towards that, like taking days, not tracking. But the point I'm getting to is like, learning how to incorporate all of these other things. And sometimes that's where, yeah, like this food flexibility mindset of like 
the Snickers, for example, maybe I get two little snack size ones instead of like hammering a full one every day or the ice cream Snickers bar. Maybe I rotate through if that's Snickers is your thing. And you have these different occasions for different days and, and like learning how to build that into what you're doing collectively, man, it's one of the most powerful tools I think that people could have going forward into the rest of their life, just ditching this like whole black or white thinking around their nutrition, but it takes effort doing that. And it kind of takes going to the extreme sometimes and coming back to a place of more balance for sure. Um, but man, we don't have to completely get rid of all of these things. Like kind of like you alluded to white fish, broccoli, you know, uh, salad, whatever it is. And then yeah. it's just like, okay, two weeks later, I'm fucking sick of that. So what's next kind of thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I agree with all those things you just said there. Um, and I think uh, I definitely, I am a coach who works uh, with calorie tracking. I think it's an incredible tool. Cause like I said, I think one of the big missing people for pieces for people is uh, knowledge about how fat loss works, about how much they're eating and about how they respond to um, various amounts of food. And uh, so I do find calorie tracking incredibly helpful, but um, well, I don't even know if I would say, but I think I'll say, and also then spending time at the same time and adding things on throughout as, as you become more adept with calorie tracking, as far as doing things about being in tune with your hunger and fullness and taking time off of tracking and thinking about how food makes you feel and like the emotions around it, like really reflecting and having this awareness piece is so important. And I'm definitely a coach who doesn't just do either or, um, we do habit-based nutrition and we do calorie tracking and we work on them together, um, with the idea that at some point they're going to stop calorie tracking, right? Because you don't need to do that the rest of your life. But I think most people would benefit from time doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you kind of bring up the weight loss component here. I want to try and use that to make not a hard pivot, but a soft pivot. Uh, Before I want to pivot about weight loss and maybe even your experience and kind of how you approach that. Uh, And I bring this up in the context of like, you know, working primarily with women in their 40s, 50s, 60s, beyond. There's a lot of things that happen from a unlearning behavior, from a, you know, you've been on this earth for a longer period of time. And just like that, like it's harder for people to change the older they get. I just think that's just part of like human behavior and human psychology. Um, So you already have this population that is usually maybe a little bit more stressed, have had a lot of like life events, have a lot of responsibilities, a lot of hats that they're wearing. And then they also have this like feeling like, you know, they're responsible for their health and their body, but they don't know how to navigate through that. And then you add on the fact forties, fifties, sixties, like premenopause, right. Or uh, perimenopause. Then we get to menopause, postmenopause, like all of these things that start to happen. And it's just like, somebody's playing the game with a harder hand and then they get dealt an even shittier hand, you know, in the next five years, 10 years of their life. And they're like caught navigating all of these things. And it could be a very difficult situation. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here. It's like, I realize as I say this, it's really, you know, hard for like a 28 year old dude to sit up here and say like, oh, I, I know everything that's going on. Cause I fucking don't, you know, but I see it. And I've, I've worked with people who have gone through that and are going through that. And, and the mother-in-law that's having all the hot flashes and all these things, like, it's just, it's, I don't want to say it's sad, but it's just like, it's tough that that's a reality that people find themselves in. And then they feel like trapped because then they think their metabolism metabolism is broken or significantly slower. And they're dealing with all these things. This is a long word vomit way of saying, I want to talk about, you know, perimenopause, menopause, and we'll relate that maybe to fat loss and approaches to take when it comes to taking care of your health. A lot of people, I say weight loss, just because that's what a lot of people look for. Um, 
we can maybe talk about healthy aging and building muscle is always that, you know, on that other part of the equation that people kind of forget about, but I kind of want to start with the menopause kind of discussion and, um, just kind of hear what you have to say about, you know, people you've worked with stuff that you've kind of seen and, and, um, just like giving a definition of what this is for the other dudes that are like, what the fuck are they talking about? And then (laughs) we'll talk about maybe some of the things that happen that can make it harder for you to lose weight or get healthier, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I love, first of all, I'm definitely not a coach. I'm not, not a woman who thinks like, oh my gosh, men should not be speaking on this subject because that's just silly, right? We have people who are experts in all sorts of things and they just, they didn't have to go through it themselves. Like doctors who help, you know, people who have cancer don't have to actually have had cancer to be good at helping somebody conquer cancer. And it's the same here. You will hear some women be like, that man has, should have nothing to say on the subject. And I think that's absolutely silly because you can educate yourself and you can talk to women and, and understand their experience. Yes. Obviously as a woman who is in menopause, I have a deeper understanding of what that feels like because I'm living it. But I love when other coaches who are men or who are younger women are really seeking to educate themselves and, um, you know, understand the experience of menopausal women. And I love that you're like, hey, tell the other dudes who are going to be listening to this about this. I think it's really important. You know, in my own life, my two sons have heard more about menopause than most teenage and young 20 boys because I won't shut up talking about it. And so I think their wives are going to be way better supported by them because they're going to understand this. Um, So I think it's an important conversation to have. So for those of you who are not really familiar, you're like, I've heard that word. I don't exactly know what it is. Menopause is the point in time 12 months after a woman's last period, which means to know that a woman is in menopause, you actually don't know until after the fact, right? Because you don't know like, oh, wow, now I've been in menopause. So it it's the point 12 months after a woman's last period. Now, all of the time leading up to that is perimenopause. Peri literally means around. So it's the time around menopause. And the average age of menopause is 51. But perimenopause can start up to a decade ahead. For most women, it's somewhere usually like five to eight years ahead that the perimenopause can start. And for a lot of women, the time that they are most symptomatic is actually perimenopause. So it's this menopause transition. And we can actually talk about both of those colloquially, perimenopause and menopause as just menopause or the menopause transition. So it can get really confusing. But when we think about the whole thing is this transition the beginning of that before you've actually had your last period and been without your period for 12 months is often a time where a woman is most symptomatic. And which is why education is so important. For me, I was 43 when I first started having my first perimenopause symptoms and I had no idea. And I went literally years thinking that something was wrong with me, that I was going to be diagnosed with some kind of disease. And it was imminent. Like I was like, is this MS? Like I had lots of things in my mind that something must be wrong with me because I was having vertigo. I went to the hospital three times with vertigo. It wasn't until years later that I found out that that can be a symptom of perimenopause. I was having these little like electric zapping sensations in my head. And I was like, is this a stroke? And I didn't know that can be a symptom of perimenopause. It wasn't until I hit like the big dog of hot flashes, because everybody talks about hot flashes, that I was like, oh. I think this is menopause. And then I started educating myself on this. So I'm very passionate about it, educating women ahead of time so that as they start experiencing these um, symptoms, which, you know, frankly, there are a lot of them. So we're talking about things like 
abnormal bleeding. So, you know, a lot of women realize that at some point their periods are going to stop, but for a while, your periods might get heavier. You might have them more than once a month. So they get really irregular, hot flashes and night sweats. And for anyone who hasn't experienced a hot flash, (laughs) it's hard to grasp just how disruptive they can be to one's life. You might think like, and this is especially helpful for the men. You might not not understand like what's the big deal. Like we've all been a little hot, ladies. Like it's been a little hot. It's not like that. It's not just like a little uncomfortable. Like oh, I'm a little bit warm. So I'm going to try to explain to you what it feels like to have a hot flash, so you can kind of grasp what it might be like. So I want you to imagine like you're here on this podcast, Luke, or maybe you're leading your team in a meeting, and you start having this like burning sensation in your chest, and it starts like it starts pretty intense and it's like this fireball that's growing and growing and growing and it comes from your chest and it starts moving up and it feels like it's going to like shoot out your head. And it's not like, woo, I'm a little bit warm. Like it feels like you're on fire and like you're burning from the inside out. Like you feel like you literally might combust and fireworks might shoot out of your head. Your face is bright red. You are sweating through your clothes. You can't think straight because all you can think about is like, Ah, heat, so much heat. And then it stops. And now guess what? You're wet. You're totally wet. And then you're cold because you're wet. (laughs) And imagine this not only during the daytime, but imagine this at night and you're sleeping and that's what wakes you up. And then imagine it happening over and over throughout the night. When I first started having night sweats, there were times when I was having upwards of a dozen a night. How do you get any sleep when you're asleep and then you're hot and then you're wet and then you're cold? You know, I had a stack of towels and uh, clothes next to my bed and I was having to change. Now, once I got medicated and for me, menopause hormone therapy was the correct decision, then I felt better. But there was a good three months that I was just not sleeping at all because this was happening over and over and over. So when you hear that word hot flash or night sweats, guys, it's serious stuff. It's not like, oh, I'm a little hot. It's like, a crazy moment. And it can happen. Like I said, you're leading your team. You're on a podcast. You're in the middle of an important presentation. You're driving, right? You're If you're a teacher, you're teaching your class. And all of a sudden you're like, fireballs are coming out of you. It's very, it's very disconcerting and can mess with your sleep. And then we think about things like sleep disturbances outside of even hot flashes. Like there's just straight up insomnia that can be associated with menopause and perimenopause. Depression, anxiety, allergies when you've never had allergies before in your life, joint pain, pain with sex, brain fog. Imagine just, you know, everyone's like lost their words, but imagine like all of a sudden, like you just can't find words at all. And this has happened to me. I've been on a lot of podcasts when I was really struggling with brain fog and I still have it, but it's not as bad. And it's really embarrassing when like every few sentences, you can't think of a normal word. Like I don't know the word for pencil. Like I can't find the word. And you spend all day and you're losing your keys and you're losing your phone And then, you know, there's this sense of overwhelming fatigue and just not feeling well. And I'm not saying that every woman has all of those, but a lot of women have multiple of those. I had almost every one I've mentioned there. Um, And there are, of course, a segment of women who breeze through and they don't have any of these symptoms. And so you really have to look at the individual woman in front of you. And for women yourself, like you you don't know what to expect, but it's good to familiarize yourself with like this range of possibilities so that you can say like, ah, this, this could be perimenopause. And it's also important to know, like, besides these quality of life issues, which I just mentioned, 
menopause is associated with a whole host of serious diseases. We're talking an increase in heart disease, osteoporosis, metabolic syndrome, type two diabetes. Like this is serious stuff and we need to be aware of it both as women who, um, you know, want to prevent those self things in our own lives and as well as coaches, like these are things we can help with. Um, there's so much we can do from a lifestyle perspective to help with all of those things. Yeah. And I want to talk about that, but I, I can't get this, you know, thought about out of my mind where it's like, you have somebody who goes through this experience and they just don't feel like themselves at all. And like the thought of them not feeling like they felt before is probably fucking scary as shit. Um, and then you, on top of that, you have all of these things working against you, all of these symptoms on top of managing and doing everything else in your life that does not slow down for that. Yeah. Right. Especially with people who maybe not, uh, you know, your boys are lucky, right. But people who don't know what that is, or have never been talked about it to and, 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 you know, they're going through that for the first time with their mom or their spouse or who, whoever it might be. And it's just kind of this perfect recipe for, man, for kind of feeling like maybe you're hopeless sometimes, or just feeling like everything is stacked against you. And like, I, there's nothing to do because of this, instead of just riding this wave out. And I like that you mentioned that, Hey, maybe there's some other lifestyle, some strategies, some things that ideally can help manage those symptoms. Cause chances are, you know, you're not going to like completely eliminate all the stuff by eating more cruciferous vegetables. Like that's just yeah. not the reality. <laughs> like if it was like somebody, you're right. we'd all be super happy, but um, <laughs> of course, working with a doctor and working with the team and maybe with a coach who's experienced this or who has some, you know, um, knowledge on the subject is great. But when it comes to improving symptoms, um, still navigating your health and your fitness journey or your fitness goals, right. Um, taking care of yourself, what things come to mind for you uh, as somebody who's sitting here, you know, maybe five years before technically textbook says they're supposed to, you know, be in, in menopause, but they're feeling like shit and all these things are happening. Like what is going through your mind and where can people start? So I think, you know, education is going to be your best friend first ladies who are listening to this, like getting some education around menopause. I have two really great resources for you. They're both good friends of mine, colleagues of mine. Um, Dr. Jen Gunter has an amazing book on menopause. How did I just forget Jen's book's name? Oh, good gracious. What's Jen's book name? The Men Menopause Manifesto. Yeah. I read it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then my good friend, Amanda Thebe has a book called Menopocalypse. Both of those are like, I cannot recommend them highly enough. You will return to them again and again and again. So getting really familiar with what to expect is so helpful, just like anything, right? If you know what to expect, what the possibilities are, it's not as scary. You, you, know, you come from a, a place of knowledge. And then, um, you know, as you're feeling these symptoms, you know, you mentioned the word hopeless and that's such a great word. A lot of women feel that way. So knowing you're not always going to feel this way, knowing that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Now for me, like I said, I've struggled with symptoms for a decade now and I'm in menopause, but I'm still symptomatic. But those who are out ahead of me, Amanda Thebes talks about this all the time. She's already post-menopause several years and she's feeling better. Like she doesn't have brain fog anymore. So knowing that at some point, you're going to feel better is really important because who wants to be like, I'm going to feel like crap the rest of my life, right? So knowing that it will get better over time and then getting help to navigate the things that you can't control. So getting, for a lot of women, menopause hormone therapy is amazing. It's a great fit. Talking to your doctor about that absolutely is something I recommend. And whether it is or whether it isn't, it doesn't cure all things. Like it doesn't fix everything. And so then 
looking to see like, okay, so how can I still be a person who moves her body when she has joint pain? And how can I be somebody who still eats well when she's exhausted and getting help navigating around those hurdles, even though they're not necessarily going away anytime soon. Um, And that's what I do as a coach a lot. I help women who are like, okay, we've got the medical help on board. Now let's work on how do we reduce your stress and how do we help you be a person who still moves and what that movement might look like could vary day to day based on your symptoms. And so, you know, I help them come up with like a chart of like a scale of one to 10 and a 10 is like, I'm feeling my best. I'm going to do my regular workout as planned. But if I'm feeling like a six, maybe I'm going to just do the first two exercises and I'm going to do them at a lower intensity. Um, I'm not going to not do anything, but maybe if I'm feeling like a one, I'm just going to walk or maybe I'm just going to sleep. And if I'm like a three, I'm going to go for just a walk today. And so getting this like menu of activities that you can rely on to still be a person who exercises, who moves her body um, can really help with that as well. So really looking for how do we navigate these things that aren't going to change so you can still reach your fitness goals, be healthy, do things like, you know, decrease your risk for heart disease and osteoporosis, um, even though you're feeling like crap right now, might not want to eat well and move your body. Yep. Yep. And I think uh, there's always a saying of like, oh, we always have to be proactive instead of reactive. And I think that applies in a lot of contexts. But when it comes to like menopause and navigating, honestly, a lot of different things, you don't even have to be in menopause to do this. But I think there's a level of like being more in tune with yourself and practicing being both proactive and reactive, proactive in the sense of like, Hey, I have this list, these things, these behaviors, uh, these priorities that I'm doing to take care of my health, my stress, um, you know, all of the laundry list of things that might come up that could lead to things like emotional eating, right? Like how can we take the break instead of reaching for the Oreos and yada, yada, yada. There's a lot of things that we could do to pre be preactive, but from a react standpoint, I love that you brought this up is like, you might get to a day where you have day four of your program and you feel fucking horrible. And for you doing one hard set of every movement might be the recipe for that day instead of trying to be perfect and finish, you know, uh, the whole program and do it just to, you know, do it for do it's sake and white knuckle everything. Like, I think there's a lot of, you know, um, it, kind of important opportunities that people can uh, be reactive and just be a little bit more, in touch with themselves, be nicer to themselves, right? Like, like having this mindset that like, Hey, we could be fluid with this on paper. We have a plan, but it's not going to go according to plan every day. And if you're expecting that, then man, you're, you're likely going to be frustrated every single day or every single week because life is going to slap you in the face. But that's kind of what comes to mind is like, you have to have a balance of both, you know, and the light at the end of the tunnel analogy is cheesy, but it's really good knowing that things can improve, but we also have to know like, what can we do today to respond or to be proactive around what we're doing so that we can manage symptoms or maybe feel better or prevent something or respond to something and then feel better quicker instead of pushing through it and then just feeling like a bag of trash the next day kind of thing. Yeah. And it practically helps with motivation. It helps keep that motivation high when you come into a day when you're not feeling well and you're like, okay, I'm just going to do these first three exercises and I'm going to do them a little bit of lower RP or whatever it is, because you know, that's the plan. It's not like this feeling of hopelessness or defeat, like, ugh, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing because it is the plan, right? So it can really help keep that motivation high of like, I know I'm doing what I'm set. I'm supposed to do. Um, that's a big piece of it for a lot of women. Yep. Yep. And the follow-up question I have on this too, is this, uh, so there's a lot of symptoms curious if you know, or what your stance is on this on, menopause and going through this process of 
impacting your metabolism? Does it completely tank it? Right. Is, uh, cause there's a lot of time this perception we hit 30 and, you know, we look at food and we can start to gain weight. Right. Um, but that happens 40, 50, 60, you know, like, um, where, where's your stance on that? And what would you tell to somebody is like, Hey, Kim, I, I can't even like eat anything. Cause I'll gain two pounds overnight. So like, what the, what, what should I do? Like, what, what is your response to that? Or what's your thought? Yeah. Um, so the evidence does not show that menopause slows our metabolism, nor does age. And it really shocks people to hear that. But, um, you know, we have good evidence to show that this is not what is happening, which ladies listening, don't get mad at me and be like, but yes, it is. I am gaining weight. I'm not saying that you're not. But the good news is it's not because of menopause and it's not because age is slowing your metabolism. We have research that shows that our metabolism, in fact, does not change until after age 60. And then it's really reducing at a very slow rate. And so the reason you're gaining weight or not losing weight is not a slow metabolism. It is not menopause. Now, this is really good news because it's stuff that's in your control. Menopause does shift where we tend to store fat. So our fat storage patterns change. Uh, and this is not going to come as a shock to any woman in menopause. When I tell you that the tends to shift to our midsection. So we store more of our excess fat. If you have excess fat, it's going to your midsection versus your hips or your thighs. This can be very distressing from an aesthetic point of view, like looking in the mirror and all of a sudden you're like, where did this belly come from? Um, it's also unhealthy as visceral fat, that fat stored around our organs can lead to all kinds of unfavorable health outcomes. Um, but good news is we lose that fat the same way we lose fat anywhere else on our body. We lose it through a sustained calorie deficit. So eating fewer calories than it's going to take to maintain your weight, we get those calories under control, you can lose that fat. So that's the really important part. Know your metabolism is not slowing because of menopause. We have to take into account that you have these additional hurdles. We help you work around them. We help you work around your symptoms we give you the knowledge you need to know, like, I can impact how much I'm moving. I can impact how much I'm eating. I can change my body composition by building muscle. And all of these things allow you to get the body that you have, that you have in your mind, both from a health perspective and an aesthetic perspective. Yep. Hell yeah. And sorry, guys, there's a really loud noise going off. Uh, the first Monday, I forgot about this. The first uh, Monday of every month, we have a nuclear power plant near us and they do a test. I don't, can you hear that? No, I can't. So, oh, yeah. okay. It's really loud. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I appreciate you saying all that. <clears throat> and, um, you know, as, uh, as much as people and, and even myself, right, we would want to hear, oh, yes, my metabolism, like there's a thing that's happening that makes this harder. Uh, that could be that could be a hard pill to swallow sometimes because it puts this like self-responsibility on people. And it's uh, it's tough, right? Because there's a lot of things that are going on in people's lives and and like offloading that responsibility to something else or putting blame on something, I think is a coping mechanism that some people can resort to. But once we get over the idea that like, oh yeah, my metabolism really isn't the, the thing at play here. I think that could be a really enlightening experience after you go through the process of like grieving and you acknowledge it and you kind of move on from it. Like people will get to the point where, okay, what do I need to do about it? And acknowledging the fact that like, yeah, hormonally, there's a lot of fucked up shit going on. Um, and 
that's not necessarily decreasing your metabolism, but it has everything to do with how you feel. So everyone's like, you know, perception of this is valid, right? Like menopause makes this harder because you feel worse and you have less motivation or drive or ability. And, um, you know, just, just like how you approach every day, it's, it's going to be maybe a different baseline than what you're used to or what you wish it was at. So of course we have to validate the fact that like, you're going through the things you're feeling it, but there's still a lot that we could do. And I think for me, again, sitting here as a 28 year old dude, I, I, I can't help, but think that that's still a positive thing that we could take away from everything in a sea of kind of stuff that is something I wouldn't wish on anybody if we're being real. I think it's incredibly positive. And this is the message I like to say to women. I'm like, it's a good, it's great news that it's not your metabolism. Like what is your metabolism? I mean, what do you have hope? I guess that you can find some metabolism boosting diet. It doesn't exist, right? Whenever you hear somebody saying, we're going to rev your metabolism or these things like that stuff doesn't really exist. And the good news is you don't need it to exist, right? There's scientific principles that we follow. And if you do these things, you can lose weight. So it's great news that it's not your metabolism or it's not menopause. And yeah, like there is that kind of relief that would come from shifting blame. But then there's that like, what are you going to do? Shrug your shoulders and be like, oh, there's nothing I can do about it. That's a terrible situation to be in. So feel empowered, ladies. Like there is something you can do. You have control of the situation. Heck yeah. Yeah. And uh, I want to be respectful of your time here. We're coming up on an hour already. Time flies by. But uh, I I think the note that I'd like to end on is this concept. Now that we've talked all around this is like, yeah, we have control over this. We can do a lot of things to manage these things. Like things will continue to get better. We still have control over our results and our our output that we're giving. But this expectation part of like how quickly that will happen is the hard part, I think, for people to accept, especially maybe someone like yourself who went, you know, majority of her life, you know, had kids, last, you know, kid gained a lot of weight, didn't know where to start. Like if we look at it, like that was probably a, you know, the kid, of course, having a you know five-year stretch, however long you took to have kids, but like that's probably a 20-year process that you've accumulated this weight over this years. And there's this perception that like, okay, we can we can lose all of it or half of it in a matter of 12 weeks if we're in a really structured deficit, which you know, maybe is part of the plan, could possibly be true for your situation. Who knows? But generally speaking, like years of accumulated weight, years of stress, years of all these things, it's not going to be unlearned in a matter of months. Right. And I think I don't want to discourage people from starting in the first place. That's where, you know, this time of the year, new year's, I think even you, you have a great, like, Hey, this is an eight week starting program kind of thing. So we can build some habits so you can carry those with you in the future. But how would you like say to a client or somebody listen to this podcast, like, how can we manage our expectations and be at peace with the fact that like, we want this to happen quickly, but understanding that it's likely not going to, and that's probably in your best interest too, if we think about it. Yeah. I feel like, you know, here in North America, we're very steeped in the like biggest loser culture. We see, we want that fast and we were like, okay, I've seen this can happen. It's not realistic and it's not useful to focus on that. Does it happen? Can it happen? Sure. Is that most people's experience? No, it is not. And so expecting yourself to lose multiple pounds a week, even a pound a week can be a lot for some people. It's going to depend on a couple of things. Typically, the, the weight uh, of the rate of weight loss I give people to focus on is going to be somewhere between half a pound per week to two pounds per week. Whenever I say that, everyone just focuses on that two pounds. and like, great, I can lose eight pounds this month. Well, yeah, if you're somebody who has a lot of weight to lose, you absolutely could. If you're somebody and you have 
10, 15, 20 pounds to lose, that's probably not you. And you're definitely going to be much happier with your results if you're shooting for that half a pound to one pound per week. Um, and also not just relying on the scale to see progress is going to be so much more motivating because a month of losing half a pound per week can look like a heck of a lot more, especially if you're adding in strength training. It can look like so much more in the mirror, in pictures, and with um, using a measuring tape to measure yourself. So, you know, losing that two pounds in a month can actually feel so good. So expect to feel good, expect to see progress. But if you're expecting, you know, two pounds per month, two pounds per week or more, and you don't have a ton of weight to lose, you're you're shooting for something that's going to feel discouraging. Yeah. Yep. I love that you bring up the biggest loser culture because there's a reason that show only made it like one or two seasons or however long the fuck that thing lasted for. And that most of the people gained the weight back, right? You know, like that's that's just what happened. Exactly. So you want to be able to lose weight and there's nothing wrong with fast weight loss. And for some people, that's highly appropriate. Like if you have 150 pounds to lose, hundred pounds to lose, fast weight loss could be really appropriate for you. You also want to pair it, whether you're, you have a lot to lose or a little use to lose, you want to pair it with sustainable habits so that you know how to keep that weight off because there is nothing more discouraging than to lose a bunch of weight and gain it all back. I've been there. I've done it. Like I lost 50 pounds. I gained more of it back than I didn't. You want to understand how you're losing it and what you changed in your life to be able to continue to maintain that weight loss. It's so important. Yep. Yep. I'm happy you're saying all this now because again, that's why I love you and your approach. Um, but, but it's, it's hard for people because then they'll go to the airport and like, we go back to that women's world magazine and you see Dr. Hyman on there saying 30 pounds and 30 days. And that's yeah. what we're comparing our shit to, right? Like that's the baseline that we yeah. think we should be living up to or shooting for. And in reality, it, it's, probably the opposite of that, right? Like if it, if we like, you know, the 1% or half a pound to two pounds, like depending on the person in the situation that they're in, man, it's uh, it's going to look very different, but we have to appreciate the fact that the diet industry is like worth $80 billion or something crazy like that. And they feed on you failing, reverting back to their programs, buying the magazines, buying the shakes, the meal replacement plans, like all of these things. And they don't want you to lose that weight and keep it off. So they're going to advertise in a way that maybe can get you results, make you feel good with those results, feel shitty once you get back there and realize, oh man, this was the thing that got me to the place that I thought I felt really good at. So I'm going to try and do that again. And it's this vicious cycle that people make killings off of. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. That woman's world magazine is the bane of my existence. I will tell you, I go to the grocery store. I take pictures of it and share it on my stories and talk to people to be like, does this make sense to you? Um, Logist like logically it doesn't. And then I often hide those magazines from people. So anybody listening, when you see those magazines, really look at them skeptically. It, it doesn't make any sense. Like you cannot lose. They'll have like, I bet there's a magazine out that right now. If I went to, I'm going to go later today and it will tell you how you can lose 30 pounds before Christmas. And it's December the 4th. And they're going to tell you, you can do it. And it's absolute absurdity. It's, yep. it's complete nonsense. Yep. And again, it's just the, it's overemphasis on the weight alone. And I'd love that you brought up these different metrics, these different measures of progress that we could have measurements, like how you look, how you fit into clothes, how you feel your symptoms with menopause, going back to that even, because a lot of times what happens, especially, you know, if you work with Kim or you work with, you know, a, a coach or someone like myself, yeah, we're not going to be advertising the quickest weight loss, but you know, we start to look at all the things that are changing, like the, the scale is usually a piece of data point that we could use great, but it really doesn't tell us anything. And things like how much muscle you're gaining or retaining as you're losing fat, 
um, are, are big players here. This whole body recomposition thing is a real thing, especially for middle-aged women who have never really been on a structured resistance training program, mm-hmm. who have never yeah. eaten enough protein before, who have never gotten their fiber in and their micronutrients in. And what can happen is that eight, you know, eight pound weight loss, like you referred to in the six week stretch, man, that could be 12 pounds of fat and you gaining four pounds of muscle, you know, and that could be the thing that is balancing out and you see eight and you decide that the, Hey, maybe that's the metric of progress, but man, it just goes so much deeper than that. And the people listening to this podcast right now, know I've talked about that a million times, but it doesn't, man, it, it doesn't hurt to hear it over and over again. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Good thing. Yep. I think we're going to end it on that uh, note there. This was incredible. I really appreciate you. Tell everyone where they can find you. I will link everything in the show notes as well, and they can find you there too. Yeah. You can find me everywhere under Kim Schlag Fitness. My last name is spelled S-C-H-L-A-G. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on my website. Um, you can find me on TikTok under that. Uh, I have a YouTube channel. My um, podcast is Fitness Simplified with Kim Schlag. Uh, You can find me in all those places. Love it. Thank you, Kim. I appreciate you. Thank you again for listening to this episode. If you found value and enjoyed it, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media. If you do, make sure you tag me so I can say thanks. Or if you're on iTunes, scrolling down and leaving a five-star review would be much appreciated. And if you ever want to get in touch with me, you can always find me on Instagram at LukeSmithRD. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. I'll see you on the next episode.